Koeia Nō mua ana hoki ia i nā mea katoa, nā nā ana hoki nā mea katoa i mau ai. Ko ia anō te upoko o te tinana, arā o te hahi. Ko ia te timatanga, ko te whānau mātā mua i roto i te hunga matai. Kia waiho ai ia hei tuatahi i roto i nā mea katoa. Ko tā te mātua tera i pai ai. Kia noho te huanga o nā mea katoa ki roto ki aia. Kia maroto ai i aia te hohongorongo mō nā mea katoa ki aia. Kua mauna i aia te rongona toto o tōna ripeka. Ai rā, mai roto i aia, ahakoahia mea nō te whenua, ahakoahia mea nō te rangi. Christ is the visible likeness of the invisible God. He is the firstborn son, superior to all created things. For through him God created everything in heaven and on earth, the seen and the unseen things, including spiritual powers, lords, rulers and authorities. God created the whole universe through him and for him. Christ existed before all things, and in union with him all things have their proper place. He is the head of of his body, the church. He is the source of the body's life. He is the firstborn son who was raised from death, in order that he alone might have the first place in all things. For it was by God's own decision that the Son has in himself the full nature of God. Through the Son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross, and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. That's a reading from Colossians 1, verse 15 to verse 20. 
Hello, my hook and my whanau. Welcome back to our podcast this week. Um, we're just making a slight deviation in plans uh, from our Earth series. We're going to take a break because uh, this week is the week of Te Aranga, the week of the rising, or in Pākehā we call it Easter. It is the weekend where we uh, acknowledge and remember um, the mahi of Kotetama, Aihu Karati. We remember the mahi of, of Jesus Christ and what God has done by by going to the place of death and going through the path of death and in going through that path was raised to new life by your matua kore. Uh, it is where we recognize that God, the uncreated God, um, bound himself to creation and not only just to creation but the bad parts, the worst parts of creation and went through the path of death and conquered death by being raised to life. So we want to take a little moment to um, to deviate from our series of Earth and this podcast is a reflection on the mahi of Jesus, of Ihu Karati. One of the reasons I wanted us to um, take an interjection for Easter um, from our series is because um, today, eight years ago, Years ago, a, um, a, a dear friend, a father, a mentor of mine uh, passed away. His name was in Salagi or in his Cherokee nation. His name was White Eagle. Uh, and his, uh, yet in his birth name, he went by the name of Rod Wilson. I had the privilege of living with Rod and his wife at the time, uh, Alexis, for a couple of years here in Auckland. Uh, Rod uh, was, like I said, he was of the Salagi Nation, or in American Pakia, it's called the Cherokee Nation. Uh, he was he was from that tribe, and when he would speak, he was a, he was an amazing Bible scholar, and when he would speak, he would dress up in his tribal regalia and he would t- and he would talk. Today's podcast is a message that he gave. Well, he wrote maybe about 18 years ago now. Uh, I think about uh, I think it was given in the year 2000, I believe. Um, uh, it's it's a it's a devotion and a meditation that he wrote purely based on Jesus. Uh, so he is just talking about Jesus. So because of uh, it is the season of Tiaranga, the season of Easter. Today's podcast is simply a reflection on Ihu Karaiti, the person of Jesus Christ. Um, oh, a little, little, little bit of a, a, a briefing to this. Rod um, spent three years in silence, waiting on God, and over that three years, this is the meditation that he wrote. Uh, um, it really comes out of his own private, uh, private prayer life and prayer time on just sitting before the spirit of Jesus for no other reason than other to wait and to reflect on who God has been and who Christ has been to him. So I have permission from his ex-wife Alexis to share this podcast. Uh, you can also find it on YouTube actually. So if you want to see what he looks like, go and Google Rod Wilson, Jesus YouTube, and you can actually... Uh, I have a picture of him um, standing up in his regalia giving this this cordial.
And of course, the track that we started with today is a beautiful track called At The Cross by um, Edge Kingsland. You can get it off their uh, album where, they, where we won a two, uh, off the album called The Common Good. It's a beautiful reflection by my mate um, Luke Oram, uh, reflecting on his his uh, his walk with Jesus and sitting before the cross. So, um, hope you enjoy that track that track at the start as well. But uh, enjoy this track from from Rod. And next week we'll pick up um, with the podcast back from Andrew Jun. So, Kiora uh, Koto, uh, please be safe on the road. Cyclone. Cyclone Cook is bearing down on us uh, tonight, so please only drive if you have to, and look after your friends. And kia pai to to aranga te rafakatane. So kia ora If the patriarch Abraham were to uh, walk into this room this morning, we would all rise and we would honor him. If Moses, Prophet Moses, were to come into the room, we would rise and we'd honor him. Or Stephen the martyr, or the Apostle Paul, or John the beloved, we would rise and we would honor them and be right and fitting and proper that we did so because of who they are to us and the fathers of our faith. But if Jesus Christ were to come into this room this morning, not in some kind of mystical or ethereal sort of way, but if he were actually to walk into our midst, some of us would stand, and some of us would kneel, and some of us would begin to laugh, and some of us would begin to cry. Others would begin to quake with fear and trembling at the presence of the Lord. Some of us would fall on our faces. And how you and I respond to the person of Jesus Christ is the most important and the most revealing thing about us. The New Testament books of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John could be uh, described as a portrait, a single portrait of art, a a portrait of a a man, a man who displayed perfection at every stage of development, every circumstance of life. The Gospels are like a multicolored canvas. this, This picture of a man who didn't keep himself hidden, didn't keep himself invulnerable from the rest of mankind. He didn't keep himself secluded, but he mixed openly and freely with the ordinary people of his generation. I believe he involved himself so deeply with uh, the ordinary man, the ordinary woman of his generation, that uh, he received the, the hatred and the bitter criticism of the religious and sanctimonious hypocrites of his day. John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ that he was so ordinary that he would not have recognized him outside of divine revelation. But we have glamorized representations of Jesus today. We have the icons of the Orthodox Church. We have stained glass windows in European cathedrals. We have the American pop art in our Christian bookstores. And I think they say more about us than they do about him. And all of those things somehow have sort of demasculated him. It made him tame. But as I look at the scriptures, the Jesus of the Gospels was anything but tame. And I believe if the truth be known, there were few people that felt comfortable around him. And those who did feel comfortable around him, other people didn't feel very comfortable around them. 
He was radically unlike anyone else who had ever lived, but at the same time, he was just a natural man. He was so ordinary that many of his fellow men with eyes that were blinded by pride and self-will, they saw no beauty in him that they would desire. For the first 30 years of his life, he lived an absolutely perfect and sinless life. And yet no one noticed. No one noticed. It's written in Matthew 13, beginning in 54, when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue and so much that they were astonished. And they said, where does this man get this wisdom and how can he do these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then does this man get these things? And verse 57 says, And they were offended in him. The creator of the universe, God, put on human flesh and he walked among mankind. And mankind was offended. He was a man of such force of personality that thousands of people would sit for three days and three nights without food just to hear him speak. Demons recognized him when he walked through the streets. The sick flocked to him and sinners anointed his head and his feet with perfumed oils. At the same time, he offended the pious Jews with their strict preconceptions of what God was supposed to be like. And to all those except those whose eyes had been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, by the love of God, he was despised and he was rejected. His divine glory passed almost completely unnoticed. There was a lack of pageantry and circumstance. There was a lack of protocol surrounding his life. And the the crowds were deceived by that. In the Gospels, the character of Jesus Christ stands out faultless and blameless against the backdrop of humanity. But that character is never going to be revealed to a casual observer. It's never going to be revealed to a casual inquirer. I believe in the best of men, the best of women, there are obvious inconsistencies and inequalities. The greater the man, the greater the woman, the more uh, apparent their failings and their faults are going to be. But Jesus Christ was without flaw, was without contradiction. Virtue in a man or woman can degenerate into vice. Courage can degenerate into rashness or cowardice. Purity can turn to legalism. Purity can turn to immorality. But in Jesus Christ, there was no shadow of turning. Throughout his entire early life, he perfectly maintained every grace of divine dignity without the slightest deviation. <coughs> James 3.2 says, In many things we offend all. And if any man does not offend with his words, the same as a perfect man, and he's able also to bridle the whole body. Well, Jesus never spoke a word when it would have been wise to remain silent. And he never remained silent when he should have spoken. He had inner strength about himself, but it never became obstinacy. It never became stubbornness. It never became control. Justice and kindness were perfectly blended in all of his actions and judgments. But one never overshadowed the other. Perfect truth and infinite mercy met themselves in the personality of this man, Jesus Christ. He always spoke the truth in love. Even his harshest pronouncements against an unfaithful and apostate Jerusalem were spoken in brokenness and in tears. 
Luke 19, it's written, and when he was come near, he beheld a city, and he wept over it. And he said, if you had known, even you, at least in this your day, the things which belong unto your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, because the days will come upon you that your enemies will cast a trench upon you, and they will compass you around, and they will keep you in on every side. And they will lay you even with the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another. Because you didn't know the time of your visitation. In Mark chapter 3 verse 5 he's dealing with religious hypocrites in the synagogue. And it's written of him, he looked around about on them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their hearts. What they saw when they looked in the face of Jesus Christ was a flash of anger. But what they didn't see, what they couldn't see, was that that anger came out of a broken heart of grief because they were in bondage to their sin. I believe that Jesus was a man who would not have appreciated our need for punctuality and precise scheduling. One time he spent four days at a wedding. Other times he would allow himself to be sidetracked by a hemorrhaging woman or a blind beggar sitting along the side of the road making a nuisance of himself. Lazarus and Jairus' daughters were both raised from the dead. He arrived too late to heal them. And while he possessed all the gentler graces that we most often equate with womanhood, he could never be accused of being effeminate. He lived out an ideal of masculine fulfillment that has eluded most men for the last 20 centuries. At least three times he broke down crying in front of his disciples. And yet he was somehow thought to be linked with the, the rugged Elijah, the unrefined John the Baptist, who treated a prostitute with tenderness and gentleness. And he'd pour out burning denunciations on Pharisees and hypocrites. Most men and most women are notable for one conspicuous virtue or grace in their lives. Moses is known for his meekness. Job was known for his patience. John of the Revelation is known for his love. But in Jesus you find all of those attributes of God, and each without limitation. I think at the risk of sounding irreverent, I do not believe that Jesus was a very... He's not a person you could call normal. He wasn't really very well adjusted to the world in which he found himself. I don't believe you can call, be called normal or well adjusted if your world declares you to be demon-possessed and then nails you naked on a tree. His uniqueness, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ is most clearly demonstrated by the things which every other great prophet or teacher or seer did or does, but which he did not do. He never spoke a word that had to be withdrawn or modified. He never spoke inadvisedly. He never exaggerated. He never spoke a half-truth. He never made a misstatement. He never apologized for any of his actions or any of his words. The ability to apologize is considered by most people a sign of greatness in a man or a woman. But Jesus never said anything or did anything that required an apology. He never confessed sin. The holiest of men, the holiest of women throughout all of human history have been those who have been quick to recognize their sins, their failures, their shortcomings, their faults, and to confess them openly. 
But in 1 Peter 2.22, it said of Jesus Christ, he did no sin. Rather, in John 8.46, he invites people to investigate his life. He said, which of you can convince me of sin? And if I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Outside the possible exception of prayer, nothing that he ever did was done in secret. He shouted his criticisms in the marketplace, and he shouted his criticisms in the synagogue. He never asked for forgiveness. He never showed any sign of remorse. He never exhibited a a fear of some future penalty to come. When he admonished his disciples to pray, he said to say these words, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses. But he never prayed those words. Because he owed no debts and he made no trespasses. He never sought advice. Even from the wisest men of his day, he never sought advice. All other great and godly and holy men have done that. Moses had advisors, Solomon, David, but not Jesus. And on those occasions when a well-meaning friend would offer advice, it was rejected and oftentimes with a scathing rebuke. He never tried to justify his actions. He never offered an explanation or extended an apology for his actions. He was allowed... He was content to allow the the passage of time and the unfolding of his father's will to vindicate his life. There were qualities that seldom exist in any one human being that found themselves naturally blended in his life. He had a completely harmonious mixture of dependence and independence in his life. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 15, he says to his disciples, I have... Desired, I have longed with a great longing to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, on the night before he's to die, he's conscious that he had at his disposal all the resources of heaven, all the resources of earth. And yet he craved the company of those 12 men with whom he had spent the last three and a half years. He was entirely free from the censure of the multitudes, he was entirely free from the praise of the multitudes. And yet he warmly received the companionship of that inner circle of friends. I believe there was an inexpressible sadness and unspeakable joy that naturally blended themselves in his personality. Isaiah 53.3 says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But Hebrews 1.9 says he was anointed with the oil of gladness, the oil of joy above all others. Matthew 16.13 When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And how we answer that question in our hearts determines our eternal destiny. His mother was a virgin, and he was conceived by God the Holy Spirit. His birth broke every social and biological rule in existence. He was the son of a carpenter. And he was born and raised in poverty, and yet he accepted the worship that's due to God alone. He was a man who had time for children, for the elderly. He was a man who touched the rotting skin of outcast lepers. He'd weep over cities' unbelief. He was a man who called the one who betrayed him his friend. He was a man who experienced success without it degenerating into egotism or arrogance. He was a man who could face reversal without turning hard. He was a man who endured temptation but never yielded to his pressure, never compromised his conscience. He never sinned. 
He was a man who practiced a radical sociology by rehabilitating thieves and prostitutes. He was a man who valued women and minority groups. He was a creator, he was a healer. He was a shepherd and an innovator, a storyteller and a weathermaker. He was a botanist and an alchemist and an exorcist. He was a seeker and a seer and a motive center. To the artist, Jesus Christ is the one who's altogether lovely. To the architect, he's a chief cornerstone. To the sick, he's the great physician. To the preacher, he's the word of God. And to the philosopher, he's the wisdom of God. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. To the farmer, he's the lord of the harvest. To the professor, he's the master teacher. To the prodigal, he's the forgiving father. To the lost sheep, he's the good shepherd. To the thirsty, he's the water of life. To the hungry, he's the bread of life. To the confused, he's the light of the world. To the broken, he's the healing bomb in Gilead, and to the dying, he is the resurrection, and he is the life. Jesus Christ was ahead of his time, and he's ahead of our time. He was always beyond and always above the rest of us. He occupies the whole sphere of human existence. He is God the Son, the creator and the sustainer of the universe and all that's in it. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. They hold together. He is the beginning and the end of all creation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and he is the last. He is the first cause of all things. He exists in all places at once, being immense, infinite, incomprehensible. He's all-knowing and he's all-powerful. He's the author of the old and he's the author of the new creation. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily and all the perfections of deity exist in this man, Jesus Christ. He's possessed of all spiritual blessings and all the promises of the covenant of grace are found in him alone. He is the fullness of grace. He is light and life and wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. He is strength and joy and peace and comfort. He is our grace here and he is our glory hereafter. He is the regeneration and the salvation of his people and he by his gracious presence dwells in his church in the hearts of all believers of whatever tribe or whatever nation they may be. He's revealed in his people. He's formed in them. He dwells in their hearts by faith. He's exceeding precious. He's altogether lovely. He is the fairest among 10,000 and he is esteemed above all things. All mankind are his creatures. All conditions are set in order and regulated by his providence. All human beings are equally purchased by his blood. He alone is the source from which all men have come, and to him alone will all men return. He is the maker, the preserver, the savior, and the judge of all mankind. And one cold night, in a borrowed room, Jesus Christ rose from his meal, and he laid aside his garments, and he wrapped a towel around himself, and he poured water into a basin, and Jesus Christ got on his hands and on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. Other people affected this man deeply. Self-righteousness infuriated him. Simple faith thrilled him. He was more emotional and spontaneous than the average person. He was more passionate, not less. He said little about the Roman occupation of his country, which was a, a major topic of conversation among his countrymen, but he would take a whip to drive petty profiteers out of the temple of Jerusalem. He urged obedience to the Mosaic law, and at the same time he acquired a, a reputation for himself as being a lawbreaker. He 
could be deeply moved with sympathy towards a stranger and yet turn on one of his closest friends with a fiery rebuke of get thee behind me, Satan. He had uncompromising views on rich men and loose women, but they both enjoyed his company. One day miracles would flow out of him and the next day they'd be blocked by a people's lack of faith. One day he would talk in detail about his second coming. The next day he would say he didn't know either the day nor the hour. He fled from arrest at one point and he marched toward it at another point. He spoke eloquently about peacemaking and then he told his disciples to buy swords. His extravagant claims about himself kept him in the center of controversy. But when he performed a miracle, he hushed it up. He was never boring and he was never predictable. In John chapter 2, Beginning in verse 23, it says, When Jesus was in Jerusalem in the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men. And he needed not that any should testify of man, because he knew what was in man. See, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that at the coming of Messiah in Isaiah 35, that he would come with a vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and he will save you. And the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then the lame man will leap as the deer and the tongue of the dumb will sing. And many of the people that were at the Passover in Jerusalem, they knew those prophecies. And when they saw Jesus performing signs and wonders, they believed on him on the basis of those miracles. They believed on him, that they were persuaded that he was either the prophet that Moses said would come or that he was in fact the Messiah himself. Yet he did not entrust himself to them. He did not entrust himself to those who believed on him. He didn't admit them into his intimacy. He didn't converse with them. He didn't even stay in their presence. The scripture says that he left and he withdrew himself and he went into other parts of Judea and into Galilee. He knew all men. He knew the good and he knew the bad. He knew the openly profane sinners and all their actions, not just their public ones, but those that were done in the dark, which were secretly devised against the innocent. He could distinguish between grace and the mere profession of belief. He could discern the secret lusts, the hearts of men, the lusts in which they indulged. He knew that all those people, upon seeing his miracles and professing to believe in him, had in their hearts a desire for a temporal Messiah, a Messiah that would grant them material blessings. He knew the hypocrisy of their belief. He knew the quick affections of others, like those who were willing to rejoice in the light of John the Baptist for a season. He knew that the faith that they proclaimed to trust in him with wouldn't continue. He didn't need testimonies of men to give him evidence of their characters and of their actions. He was a quick understanding. He could distinguish at once between a wicked man and a good man without any external evidence. He knew what was in man. He was a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart of all men. He knew that in them there was no good naturally. That their only goodness was that which was imparted to them by the Spirit of God. He knew the wickedness in man. He knew that their hearts were deceitful and desperately wicked and full of iniquity. He knew the souls of men, whether their affections were set upon earthly things or upon heavenly things, whether there was any light in their understanding or whether their wills were subdued to the will of God or not. In other words, he knew whether or not a work of grace had begun in their lives. His knowledge of men was and is threefold. The knowledge of Jesus Christ 
concerning men was threefold. It was immediate, it was profound, and it was universal. His knowledge was immediate. He didn't trust himself to them because he knew what was in them. The Lord possessed a knowledge of men that no one before or since has ever possessed. He needs no testimony to give him the knowledge of man. Isaiah 11.3 says of him, He will not judge after the seeing of his eyes, nor after the hearing of his ears. Jesus never asked a man a question in order to discover the truth about that man. He always questioned men in the light of the truth that he already knew about them. Secondly, his knowledge of men was profound. John 1 verses 40 to 42, it says, One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first finds his own brother Simon, and he says to him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah, and you shall be called Cephas, which is by interpretation of stone. He knew the whole makeup of this man Peter, having never met him. He knew his personality, he knew his character, and he'd never met him. Five verses later, it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him. And he said of him, Behold an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no guile. He knew Nathanael. He knew his inner being, having never met him. With perfect ease, he brought the truth of each man's light out into the open so that others knew that man. And that man knew himself better than he'd ever known himself before. You cannot stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ without being exposed for who you really are. His knowledge of men was and is profound. He didn't form his estimation of human character by external observances. He knew what was in man. And lastly, his knowledge of men was universal. A man of one race might understand men of his own race, but Jesus understood all men. When he dealt with a Jew, he knew exactly how to converse with a Jew in the language of a Jew and Jewish thinking. But in John 12, beginning of verse 20, it said, Certain Greeks came seeking him. And they said, We would see Jesus. Now this was not a statement of longing, but this was a statement of examination. They hadn't come to adore and to worship. They had come to test him and to try him. We would see this Jesus. And in verse 23, he answered and he said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, accept a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Jesus responds to the Greeks here using a language that revealed his knowledge of Greek mysteries that was unknown to Jewish scholars and Jewish rabbis in his day. It was only in the 20th century that Jewish, that Greek, certain Greek scholars discovered an ancient Greek idiom concerning the cutting off of an ear of wheat to gain more. In Jesus, the Greeks found a master of their own culture. He knew all men. He knew them. He regarded all men as being spiritual in their beings, as being sinners by their experience, and as being savable by the grace of God. In Matthew 2 and 10, 28, he declares that all men should consider eternity when he says, seek first the kingdom of God. It's a call for men to look away from the material world to the spiritual world. And whether he was speaking to a rich man or a poor man, whether he was speaking to a, a prostitute or whether he was
speaking to a priest, he continually dealt with the spirit of that individual, the spirit of that person, turning their eyes from their circumstances, turning them from the temporal world to the eternal. To Nicodemus, a member of the Grand Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, he says in John 3, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it chooses. You can hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's come from. You can't tell where it's going. And so is everyone that's born of the spirit. And then there's an immoral woman at Samaritan woman at Jacob's well and he says to her in John 4 if you knew the gift of God and if you knew who it was that said to you give me a drink you would have asked of him and he would have given you living waters he turned men from the temporal to the eternal because he saw them as being spiritual in their beings but he also saw all men as sinners he came to earth to deal with sin with his tears and his flesh and with his blood. He openly recognized the men that good did, the good that men did. At the same time, he declared his recognition of the fact that they were evil. He openly spoke that out. In Luke 11, he said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. So he recognizes man's tenderness. He recognizes his compassion. He recognizes his capacity for fatherhood, the potential for good in man. And at the same time, he said, you're evil. You're evil. He knew that man in his experience was continually sinning, and he always dealt with men as sinners. To the cripple at the pool of Bethesda in John 5:14, he said, Behold, you are made whole. Now go, but don't sin anymore. First he heals him, and then he reproves his life. In John 8:11, the prostitute thrown at his feet, he says, I don't condemn you. Go, but don't sin anymore. And while he knew the condition of every man, every, all men and all women everywhere, he also treated them as capable of being saved by the grace of God. And how did he do that? How did he treat them as being savable by God's grace? He treated every man and every woman as a human being worth dying for. Every human face is the outward manifestation of a spiritual being. Every human being struggles with sin in one form or another. And every human being can be saved. And Jesus knows what's in man's heart. No two men appear alike before him. He did not deal with any two people in the same manner. Oftentimes we have, in our witness of Jesus Christ, we've said to people, you have to be born again. How many times have we said that? John Wesley preached over 300 sermons on you must be born again. In all of human history, it's only recorded that Jesus ever spoke those words to one. He didn't have a forced spiritual laws mentality that degrades the dignity of the individual and belittles the man that says a man's deepest needs can be met by way of some formula. But he was always leading men to a recognition of the fact that they were spiritual beings, that eternity was in their hearts. He was always leading them to a recognition of the fact that they were sinners and the abandonment of that sin and he was always leading them to the grace that would free them from their sin but he dealt with a thousand different people in a thousand different ways everyone that came to him was dealt with in the fashion that was demanded by that individual's immediate need he treated everybody as an individual 
one that could not be classified. John the Baptist, he, he deals with his greatest of prophets in such a fashion that this man becomes content to say, he, he must increase, but I, I must decrease. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he says to him, Rabbi, where do you live? And Jesus' heart is thrilled. He says to him, come and see. Andrew, are you, do you want to know me? Do you want to know me? You want to know where I live? Come. Come. You're welcome to come. And Peter, Peter, this man of incredible possibilities, he tells him his possibilities. And then he brings him to their place to fulfill them. Peter, when you're converted, strengthen your brothers. Feed my sheep, Peter. Philip, Jesus sees him and he calls him. Philip was a reserve man. He wouldn't have come on his own. So he calls him. He beckons him into his presence. And Nathaniel, this guileless worshiper, this one that's brought by another to Christ, Jesus brings him to such sweet intimacy of fellowship that he becomes Bartholomew the Apostle. And Mary, his own mother, he corrects her human affection and then he commits her to his beloved friend John. Nicodemus, the intellectual seeker, this man who thinks that everything is to come to him by intellectual understanding, intellectual knowledge. Jesus says to him, what you want is not learning. What you want is life. You, Nicodemus, must be born again. The woman at the well of Samaria, she's ready for a theological argument, but she's not ready for repentance. So Jesus reveals his knowledge of her, and then he sends her to be his witness to the city of Samaria. There's a nobleman, a sorrowing father whose son is ill. He heals his son, and his whole family becomes believers. A Bethesda, the crippled man, unable to lift himself, he heals him, warns him not to sin anymore. This woman thrown at his feet. A woman taken in adultery. He delivers her, and then he lays upon her delivered spirit the great charge not to sin. As a man born blind, he gives him his sight, and he becomes a follower, a worshiper of Jesus. Mary of Bethany. He patiently teaches her. Martha of Bethany, he fills her soul with grace. Lazarus of Bethany, he's dead. To him he gives life. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, him after much long suffering, he will expose and exclude from his fellowship. Thomas, the skeptic, he patiently and gently instructs his man. Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, he will rebuke them and then become silent in their presence. Pontius Pilate, he strives to save him and then lets him go his own way. Joseph of Arimathea, the secret disciple, through his death, Jesus will bring Joseph's discipleship out into the open. Mary of Magdalene, a demon-possessed woman, he will cast out of her seven devils, and then he will make her the great messenger of the resurrection. And John, John the mystic, the dreamer, who had visions of heaven, visions of God, to him he will give the revelation. See, Jesus Christ knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He looked into the face of Peter and he said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow twice this day until you have three times denied that you even know me, but don't let your heart be troubled. The very next line, but don't let your heart be troubled. 
See, Jesus Christ knows us. He knows you. He knows that each one of us will one day, like Peter, fail him. Each one of us will one day, like Peter, deny him. And yet knowing us, he loves us. Jesus Christ loves us. He loves you. Jesus Christ loves you. That's the message, isn't it? It's Jesus Christ that loves us. Shattered fast in the company of thee.